In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Alex Debris all about DynamoDB from a relational database developer's point of view. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 139. You came on my radar because I was tweeting uh, maybe a couple weeks ago about basically wondering like what people are doing for uh, building applications with kind of non-relational databases these days. I know like MongoDB has been popular for a long time, but you also hear horror stories about that and stuff as well. Uh, but me personally, my background is just in old school traditional relational databases you know mysql and postgres and that's all i really know how to build an application with so um i've been getting into like serverless technologies and stuff a lot lately and one of the sort of obstacles with that is there's not a lot of good relational database options if you want to deploy something serverless and you um, don't want to have to worry about running into the connection limits and weird stuff like that all the databases that are sort of designed for handling that sort of thing are stuff like Dynamo or like Fauna DB or a lot of these other alternatives that aren't kind of built with like a traditional SQL sort of API. So um, you were recommended as someone to, to talk to you about this stuff. And I know you just put out a like the Bible on Dynamo DB uh, a few weeks ago. So I thought it'd be fun to, to chat about that and learn about this technology from you know, a total beginner's perspective, basically, who only knows the the relational world. How's that sound? Yep, that sounds great. That sounds great. I'm excited. So I guess maybe the uh, best place to start would be, how do you describe what DynamoDB even is? If someone was just going to ask you, like, what is this thing for? What do you use it for? Yep, sure. So it's a NoSQL database, like you were saying, and and that's not super descriptive because it basically just says what it isn't, right? It's, it's yeah. like not a relational database that, that uses SQL. Um, but you saw a lot of these sort of NoSQL databases popping up in the last 10 or 15 years. And one common thing about all these relational databases is um, they, were, they were built for like larger scale, you know, like as as these sort of um, internet enabled platforms are happening where you have like thousands or millions of, of users around the world. Um, you're finding out that like the single instance relational database just wasn't keeping up um, as well. So places started building these NoSQL databases. And I think one thing that's in common with most of these NoSQL databases is that they they shard your data across multiple instances. So rather than having like this one monolithic database, you know, your your MySQL instance, your Postgres instance, you'll have, you know, maybe five different shards of MongoDB or with something like DynamoDB, they're sharding that behind the scenes sort of transparently to you, um, but across a lot a large variety of machines. Um, the big thing that you need to do there with a NoSQL database then is that data is going to be sharded and you need to make sure you sort of design your data correctly so that you're only hitting one shard and, and doing an efficient query rather than querying across like four or five different shards mm-hmm. and having network calls. So that's a, that's a, a super high level. But um, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So the the my sort of exposure to DynamoDB, I guess, has been almost like as a Redis alternative in a lot of situations. So I see a lot of times people use Redis for like a cache, just like a key value store. And I see people using DynamoDB for that a lot if you're hosting your stuff on Amazon because a lot of the tools designed to work with Redis in that way can also interact with DynamoDB in in that way. Um, But it sounds like a lot of people are also using DynamoDB as like their primary data store like as a straight up replacement for a relational database is it is that true in your experience 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people think it's only used for a key value store like Redis type type actions, maybe a session store. And you can use it for that, but you can use it for highly relational models. You can handle one-to-many relationships, many-to-many relationships, all that in DynamoDB. Um, I show how to do that. And and there's a bunch of people doing that at, at pretty large scale. Um, if, if you're talking about like Amazon, AWS, um, any of the Amazon retail, any of the AWS stuff, they, if it's a tier one service at one of those places, which means if it's down, it's losing money, mm-hmm. um, they're required to use DynamoDB. And, and, you know, they have relational models there. They have shopping carts with items in them and they belong to customers or, or all the AWS stuff. That's all relational as well. So you can definitely handle these, these complex relational models, not just uh, key value stores. Yeah, cool. All right. So that's really interesting. So I think what would be cool would be to sort of get into i guess like just understanding some of the core concepts and stuff around this technology what some of the terminology is how some of it maybe maps back to the relational database world for people who come from that same background as me it's like i'm familiar with the whole tables and columns and rows model you know what i mean so what are some of like what are the sort of terms and concepts that you have to understand about DynamoDB to even like get started with in the first place how do you build like the right mental model for what it's doing yep sure so i'd say the four or five basic terms you want to start with and i'll just compare them to to relational models as well first of all there's the notion of a table which is going to be similar to a table in a relational database uh, with some differences that we'll get into later on so that just holds all all your data in it and then each record in a table is called an item so that's gonna be like a row in a relational database or a document in dynamodb but just like a collection of of data you know Um, each when you create your table, what you're going to do is declare a primary key for your table. And each item that you put into that table um, must have that primary key and it needs to be uniquely identified by that primary key. So, so, so right there, is that like, is that, is that auto generated by the database for you? Like it would be in like SQL or does it, you always have to provide it from the client? Yep. You need to provide it by the client and it's usually going to be something meaningful as well. Like in a relational database, you know, you might just have like an auto incrementing primary key, like you're saying, but this is going to be actually something meaningful, like maybe the username or, um, an order ID or, or something like that, that you can actually use to identify that particular item because that primary key is actually going to drive your access patterns as well. You're going to be querying directly on that primary key. Okay. Interesting. So, so I think like yeah. in like the relational database world, the advice that I've often heard has been like the opposite, right? Like don't use your email column as your primary key in your users table because it's it's going to be inefficient or whatever in different ways compared to just using an auto incrementing ID. But in, in this case, if as long as there's some like existing unique identifier for the record, the best practice is like leverage that don't add like some additional unique identifier. Yep, generally. And sometimes you might want to use something like a UUID or or similar, like if it's something like an order ID, you know, you don't really have um, anything meaningful about the order. So you can just generate a unique unique ID and use that. But then you'll probably also refer to that that ID like in your URL path or whatever to help find that. And, mm-hmm. and that'll be accessible to the client if you need to go do that lookup. You know, if someone goes to slash orders slash whatever that ID is, then then your back end knows, hey, this is the order ID I need to go fetch from the back end. Okay, got it. Uh, so what's next then after, so we started talking about this whole concept of an item and we talked about the ID and you were 
going somewhere before I cut you off, but yep, sure, sure. So that, that primary key is is super important, right? And it has to be included on every item, and it has to uniquely identify an item. So you does can't. It, does have it have to, to be like the same type? I guess like we haven't really talked about data types at all or anything, but yep. Yep. So it'll be types and it can either like the types you can use in your primary key are, are strings, numbers, and then binary Okay. for your, for your primary key. And then additionally, in addition to that primary key, you can just have attributes and those are other pieces of data that you attach to your items and they can be, um, attributes like, you know, username, um, order ID, anything like that. They can be number of items in your cart. They can be your birth date, but they can also be what, what I call indexing attributes, which will be used, um, elsewhere in your table to sort of create these different indexes um, in DynamoDB to a- a- allow for efficient data access. Okay, so these attributes, if if it's anything like the NoSQL databases that I've looked at in the past, I'm guessing every item can have whatever attributes it wants, or is there like a schema that you have to define for an item? Nope, yep, like, like you're thinking, it, any item can have any attributes that it wants. So you don't declare that up front. All you're going to declare is that primary key, and every item has to have that, but then everything else can be a total grab bag basically and and you know so it, it's called schema list in that way because you're not declaring your schema up front but you will have a schema somewhere it's just going to be in your application there and you need to yeah. enforce it there rather than just sort of having random data or else you have a, gotcha. a total mess okay that makes sense and um, we talked a little bit about like the types that are available for like the unique identifiers what other types can you use for like attributes is it still limited to the three or is there other types that just aren't suitable for unique ids yep. but can be used for yeah, good question. So there are other attributes. You can do like complex attributes. You can do lists or maps and you can Is that like an array or an object essentially? Yep. Like okay. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, or a dictionary in Python, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yep. And then um, you can also do sets. So if you want to have um, sets of unique items and and there are three different kinds of sets. There are um, the, those three types I mentioned initially, strings, numbers, and binary. You can have sets of, of each of those types. So string sets, number sets, and then binary. But you sets. can't mix like strings Correct. and numbers in a set. Can you mix strings and numbers in a list? Yes. Yep. A list can have sort of any any items you want in it and, and same with a, a map or an object as well. Got it. So there's those three sort of complex types. And then aside from that, it's just strings, numbers, and binary data. Yeah. And then like Boolean and, and nulls as well are gotcha. kind of special types. But yeah. And n- numbers, are they just like floating point numbers or... That's a good question. I should, or I should it, know this I mean, better. I yeah. mean, if, if you don't, then it probably doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you it, can store like fractional numbers and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a floating point number. I need to double check on the, the exact specifics of that. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. So we've got tables, we've got items, and we've got the keys, and we've got the attributes. Is there any other sort of like core concepts in terms of like the terminology and mapping it back to sort of like relational databases yep so there's one more concept and and i just want to talk about primary keys one more time like emphasize that all your access is going to be based on that primary key so if you're doing a lookup of a particular item you know you might have a, a an item that's a user and that primary key contains the username and that's how it looks it up but then if you have these other attributes birth date address anything like that you can't query on those directly um and and we'll get into that later. But yeah. then w- one thing you can do is, is use this thing called secondary indexes, which is is really the fifth key term here, which is where you're you're telling DynamoDB, hey, 
basically create a copy of my table um, using different columns as the primary key. And they're gonna copy that data into this secondary index. And then you can query that secondary index just like it, it was your base table and you can use the primary, uh, like a new primary key there. So if you did wanna query on a user's birth date or um, anything like that, you could create this secondary index, enable this additional access pattern to help um, access your data that way. Got it. Okay, so I guess that my next question is like, what does it look like to even create these things in the first place? Is this something that like you have to do like in the AWS console? Is this something that they, Amazon gives you like your dot dynamo file with its own format that specifies your schema? Or like, what does it look like to actually design sort of like the schema for your DynamoDB database and specify what the tables are, what the unique key name should be or what your secondary indexes should be? Like how yep. much of that stuff do you have to do up front and how much is done on the fly, I guess, is another question related to that. I would say with Dynamo generally, you're going to do a lot of your planning and table design up front. Um, and then you'll create your table and start putting items in it. But it's it's sort of flipped from a relational database where, you know, both a relational database and, and NoSQL, you'll maybe make your ERD, like your table diagram of your entities and relationships and how they interact. But then like in SQL, you go and like create a table for each entity and you link them together with foreign keys to map those relationships. And then you start putting data in and then you write your queries on how you're going to access that data. Whereas with Dynamo, you... Um, after you make that ERD, then you sort of list out all the access patterns that you have and you design your table specifically to handle these access patterns. Okay. So I have a lot of questions about that, but I guess the first question I have about that is, I guess like, why, why does that matter? You know what I mean? Um, I can't think of a better way to phrase it, but like what, what characteristic of DynamoDB, I guess, is forcing you to have to plan all these access patterns up front that is different than a relational database. Yep. And and this is like where it gets it gets pretty wild. But like so I mentioned DynamoDB tables. And you know, when you have a relational database, you probably have uh, a bunch of different tables. You have your customers, you have your orders, you have your order items, and you link those together via joins. Mm-hmm. With Dynamo, you're probably going to have one table and you're going to have all of those item types in a single table, which is that gets really weird. Um, I, I think that's like the biggest hurdle for people to overcome. It's okay. like you have, Does that mean like yeah. they all are sharing like a unique identifier, like namespace? Is that like, do you mean like they're flat alongside each other in the same table or like nested data yeah. structures in the same table? No, they're, they're like flat um, alongside each other generally. Um, but, but, but going back, let's see, with that primary key that we were talking about, you can, there are two types of primary key. One is just a simple primary key, which is basically just a key value. It has one part. Yeah. Um, you can also do a composite primary key, which has two parts. Yep. It's going to be called a partition key and a sort key. And then what happens is all the items with the same partition key are sort of located together. So you can go hit that partition and get multiple items in a single request. So you might locate all the orders for a customer in the same partition. They have that same partition key and you can get all the orders in a single request. Um, So to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, you're saying you have customers, orders, and order items in one table. Like what would you even call that table then? You you probably just call it, you know, e-commerce app or or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. And then also like... So tables are kind of like relational database tables, but also not like them, I guess, because it almost sounds like you're naming a table the same way you might name the database itself in like a relational... Yeah, that's that's probably right. Like, it, it, I, I don't love the terminology because it is table, and then people think they should make a table for each entity like they do in mm-hmm. a relational database, and that's and that's generally not the case here. Um, so, and 
And just going into like a little bit of background on why, so DynamoDB does not have joins. So in a relational database, you're going to join those tables together. If you want to get the order and all the items in that in in that particular order, you would join that together um, at read time and then display that to the user. DynamoDB doesn't have the concept of joins, and and a couple reasons there is just like joins don't scale particularly well because they're they're pretty compute intensive where you have to you know scan a big section of one table scan a big section of another table compare all these values against each other to see which ones you want and it's just like a lot of cpu time that you're burning there um so so DynamoDB gets away from that and this is based on like amazon.com their experience like with super high scale retail uh you know cyber monday and sure. black friday all that stuff um, so like their databases were just like melting down and that's why they, they sort of built this out. Um, so there are no joins in DynamoDB, but sometimes you need join-like behavior where you want to get um, different types of items in a single request. Like maybe you want to get that order and all the order items, yeah, you know, all the details yeah. about that. And so that's how, why you do that single table design. Okay, so with the single table stuff, you've got this table, it's called like e-commerce or something. And now you're saying every item in this table has to have basically a compatible, like unique ID, right? So originally we were saying like for customers, maybe you would use their email address as the ID, but like an order doesn't have an email address and an order item doesn't have an email address. So what am I like missing there to understand that? Yep. Yep. And, and yeah, there, it's like all these conceptual leaps you have to make, but really what you're going to do is something called, um, primary key overloading or index overloading where the the primary key elements or the elements of your secondary index they're going to be very generic names like instead of having uh, that attribute called username or something like that because as you're saying like an order item okay. doesn't have a username yeah. you would name it something like pk for partition key and sk for short key if you have a composite um, primary key very generic names and then what you're doing as you're modeling out your data and thinking about your access patterns you're saying okay I'm going to give the customer item this pk and i'm gonna give the order item for that customer the exact same pk and then the sort key the sk will look like this for a customer and the sort key will look like this for an order and that means they'll be sort of arranged in a in a way that i can go out and and fetch them okay so help me understand like the partition key and sort key stuff a little bit yep better yeah cool what's kind of the difference like what should you be so like we're talking about things just having like one ID before, but now there's these two types of keys and I'm trying to understand exactly what they do. Yep, cool. I think it might be useful to understand like a little bit of the architecture behind Dynamo to see sure. how that works. Yeah. So like we were saying, they want to split your data across multiple different nodes rather than having it all on one node. And this allows mm-hmm. you to scale up to, I mean, basically infinity, but there are people that have, you know, 100 terabyte DynamoDB databases and, and they still perform like the exact same as they did when they had one gig in them. Um, so what they're going to do is um, they're creating all these partitions behind the scene, which are just like instances that happen to have, you know, five or 10 gigs of data on them. Okay. And when a request comes into DynamoDB, it's going to look at that partition key and it's going to hash that value and then figure out which partition it's located on. Um, so, you know, if you have five partitions, this one, this request comes in, you say, okay, that's located on partition two. And now I can go straight to that partition. And that's basically like, a, you know, if you're like a algorithms guy, which I, I don't have a CS degree, but like basic algorithms is like, you know, that's like an O one constant time lookup where it's a lookup and a hash map to see where this partition key belongs, which node it belongs to. So when you're assigning like a partition key to something, your goal is just basically you're trying to 
tell Dynamo whether or not it's important that it's co-located with other things for yep. s- speed of access. So with like a partition key, like what's an example of like a partition key that you would assign? Is like email again something that like you would use for that, or is this like separate from the whole like ID concept? I mean, it's going to be kind of a, a a funky column. Usually, it's usually going to have like some sort of prefix value, like maybe customer in all caps hash and then like the customer username or the customer email or whatever uniquely identifies that customer that's like an example for the partition key and imagine you had a use case where you where you in access pattern where you wanted to get the customer and the customer's most recent 10 orders or something like that yep to do that you would want to put them in the same partition so that you could run a query and and get the customer get the 10 order items that come right after that so in that case the customer and the order would have the same partition key and it would be something like customer hash and customer username or customer email, something like that. So this partition key, is it just like a regular attribute or is like a whole concept separate from the attributes? I I mean, it's technically like a regular attribute, but but I what I recommend is people separate what I call application attributes, which are like the meaningful attributes in your application, the username, yeah, the birthday, yeah. all that stuff, from what I call indexing attributes, which are solely used by DynamoDB to sort of group your data into different collections so that you can query them efficiently. And I, I like I say I have a strong separation between those two. And and some of those are only there for DynamoDB and some of those are only there for your application and, and that's it. So right now I'm picturing like based on what you've taught me about the the stuff that there's like three indexing you know columns or attributes is that correct like there's like the unique identifier there's a partition key and then there's the sort key or are two of them the same thing or there's some overlap there so the partition key and the sort key are the unique identifier for an item Okay, so but, and do you have to specify that? Like, you have to say, like, okay, I'm gonna concatenate these strings manually to tell you what this is, or is that like something that Dynamo is like just doing? Yeah, there. So there are two different attributes in that case. So you can make a primary key, which is that unique identifier. You can make it be that simple primary key, which is just a single attribute uniquely identifies it, or you can make it this composite primary key. Where if you're doing complex access patterns and you have relationships and things like that, you're almost always going to use that composite primary key. And that's going to have those two values, partition key and sort key. And you'll specify that when you create your table. And you'll say, my partition key name is PK, my sort key name is SK. And then when you write that data to DynamoDB, your item's going to have a PK attribute, it's going to have an SK attribute, and then it's going to also have all your other attributes like username, date of birth, things like that. Gotcha. So in this case, we're talking about like using the same partition key for a customer and the customer's orders. And maybe mm-hmm. that partition key, like you were saying, is like customer, all, uppercase, hash, one, two, three, four, five, which is like, or maybe hash John Doe at example.com. Yeah. And you're saying you would use that exact same partition key for all of the orders that belong to that customer. So it's almost like you're creating this like nested object, but then like flattening it and just like yep. making sure that they're, kind of parent identifier is like the same okay so what is the sort key then like one thing you keep talking about is like being able to like query and get the customer and then all the records that come after it which is an interesting thought to me because it sounds like the way that queries work in DynamoDB is a bit different than what i'm used to yeah so let's talk about the sort key and understand what that is and then maybe dig into like what it means to actually like query stuff and why it sounds like things have to be like all next to each other to be able to query them or learn more about that. So we know the partition key. Now what are we talking about with the sort key? 
Yeah. So all the items with the same partition key are going to be located next to each other and they're going to be ordered in order in terms of that partition key, which is going to be sorted in order of, of UTF-8 bytes, which is basically alphabetically um, with a few tweaks, like numbers are in there, symbols are in there, all the uppercase letters come before the lowercase letters, but they're going to be sorted alphabetically um, within that partition key according to that sort key value. And like the mental model that I use for people, if you're using this composite primary key, is imagine you had like a bookshelf full of um, dictionaries or phone books. Uh, maybe you have like a dictionary for each each country on earth or something like that, each language, yeah. whatever. And so the the um, first, and then someone says like, go to the English dictionary and get me everything between like goat and hippopotamus, right? Mm-hmm. And that English dictionary, that's your partition key because it's saying, which book do I go to? Which partition am I looking for there? So you go find that one. And then you can get a range of values. And just like a dictionary is going to be sorted alphabetically, it's, it's very easy to go to that dictionary and say, okay, I'm going to start at goat and I'm going to go to hippopotamus and get all these values in between there. Okay. So, but, and, uh, and then, so you can only sort, you can only like query that, that sort key in a specific way of like, you know, the beginning of a word. You couldn't say, go to that dictionary and get me every word that ends in ing because like, that's not how the dictionary is sort, sorted. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So what's an example of like the content of the sort key? Is it just like you arbitrarily putting stuff in to force things into the right order that you want, like based on the fact that you know that it's going to sort alphabetically? Yep, exactly right. So just like you were doing with the partition key, like sort of making this this funky indexing attribute, you'll do the same thing. So an example here, if we continue with that customers and orders, they both have that customer hash email or customer ID for the partition key. The customer item itself will probably have the exact same thing for the the sort key. It'll be customer hash, um, the user ID again. Okay. And then the order items would be something like order hash and then the order ID. And then when you go to that, you could say you'd make a query. A query allows you to read multiple items within a single partition in one request. So you'd make a query and say, hey, my part, the partition key I want to get is this one, customer hash one, two, three, four, and give me... 11 items and it's going to get you that customer item and, and work its way down through the order items until it hits um, the 11th, which will give you the customer item and then 10 order items and return those to you. Okay. So that makes sense. How, how would you know like how many order items there were? Say you wanted to get all of the order items for a customer. If you don't know like the number ahead of time. Yep. Sure. You don't have to put a limit, but I'm just imagining like a, a paginated API where maybe you want to have 10 or something like that. And, but you also want to get that, that related item, that customer for whatever reason, maybe you're going to join some data in there basically. Then you could say 11. Yeah. Um, but. I guess I'm thinking like if we're saying there's like customers, orders and order items, now we've got like three things sort of sharing that partition key. Each three of those three types has its own sort key that one is like customer one customer hash order hash order item hash i guess um what order do you want to be able to to put those things in like say i wanted to get like a list of the last 10 items that someone ordered but didn't care what orders they were on is that one of those things where it's like okay well you better just design your data to make that next to each other otherwise like you're kind of sol or you're gonna at least have to like get probably more than you need and filter stuff out in application code Yep, either one of those, generally that first one. But but that's why, you know, DynamoDB, you need to model your access patterns first. So if you had that one and say, give me the last 10 
items that someone ordered, like that would be an access pattern you list and you say, okay, how am I going to design this so that all their order items are in a, a particular item collection, which means they say, share the same partition key there. They're in the same dictionary, if you will. Um, and then, you know, they're ordered in a particular way so I can, I can find the most recent and, and get the, get 10 items. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and now you were saying that you're not limited by like saying, okay, I only want to fetch 10 records. Now, one thing I, I want to make sure I understand correctly is when you say like, okay, I want, is the only thing you're allowed to query by the partition key essentially? So if you're fetching multiple items, you basically have two options, um, but but mainly you have that query option. And and when you're doing a query, you have to specify the partition key. And, and that's how Dynamo scales because it allows you to choose the right partition to go to, the right dictionary to pick up mm-hmm. and, and start looking through. So you have to include that partition key. You can also use a scan, which is just a table scan, but that's not going to be very efficient if you have a lot of data. So, okay. so it's mostly based around that query one. You can also do single item operations. So if you want to get a particular order, you can do that just by, you can do a, a get item request where you specify the partition key and the sort, and key, the sort key for that order. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So say I wanted to get like, um, the the orders eleven through twenty, like the second page, and like this paginated thing of the ten. Mm-hmm. Are you able to specify like offsets into the query? So you can say like, I want. I guess in this case, if if we know that the person has, if the first record in the partition is the person itself, then you need to sort of account for that when you're specifying like the offset that you're starting from, or is that even like the right? concept like i guess first of all does the concept of offsets exist is that even like a best practice for doing this or is there a totally different way that you would fetch that second page yep so there's not an offset directly so you can't just say hey skip the first 10 items i'm on page two now okay (laughs) but what you can do is you know maybe the the page sends up this is the last item i saw the last item id I, i saw and then when you do that query um, request making that second page, you can say, okay, here's my partition key and I want 10 items greater than this particular sort key because I've already seen this sort key. So I want to start here in the dictionary. So it's like if you're paging through that dictionary and you get to some word and then you know, now you want to go to the next page, you just say, okay, it's got to be greater than this value. So how would you build that if you if you knew you wanted to just have like the pagination for something built into the URL and you wanted to say like orders, query string, page equals two and you just hit that out of the box you don't know what was on the previous page without fetching the previous page so is there like a way to do that or or would you just fetch the previous page i so i would recommend not building in like page equals two what i would just do is is have an orders and maybe you have a query param that says like last scene equals this like and and so what you do is you 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 don't have the use case where someone can go straight to page five that's not going to work you're just saying you're you get to tell them what they're specifying an index in the list basically themselves. Yep. Like if it, you know, if they start on page one of the, yeah. of their orders and they hit next and you say, okay, the last one I had on the last results was this one. Just send that up as a query string parameter and say, start from here and, and go to the next page. I think that's how like GitHub does pagination even, right? Like, yeah, if you look at like GitHub's um, query string, it's like, okay, you're looking through the commits, you go to page two, there's a query parameter that's after equals, and then it's like a commit hash. So that sounds like it's similar in the sense that yep. they're not saying, give me page two. They're saying, give me the, in this case, it looks like 34 items after this one, um, okay. yep. which sounds like you'd be able to do like that same sort of thing. 
Okay, mm. so that's pretty interesting. So say like um, with the three items, right, you have like customers, orders, and order items. In our case, those are like conveniently already in like the correct alphabetical order. But say yeah, one like, thing I would say there is you probably wouldn't have an access pattern that, that um, got all three of those in one request. You could do it, but it would be a little more tricky. What you'd probably have is you have one access pattern that gets a customer and the customer's orders, and then you have a different access pattern when they drill in on an order that gets the order and the order items. And okay, so how would you do that? Because I'm imagining that this table has like customer, order, 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 and then like a hundred order items if they're all yeah. grouped together. But how do you get like the order and its order items if they're not like actually next to each other in the table? Or what are you doing that actually makes them next to each other in the table? Yep. Yeah, it, it's, it's a good question. And that's where those secondary indexes come in. So like on your primary key, you can't satisfy both of those access patterns. You can't do customers and orders and order and order items. So what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to handle order and order items in a secondary index. And you create a secondary index. You just like you're creating your primary key, you declare the attributes you're going to use, and you'll probably use very generic names there. So these things are called the global secondary indexes. You probably have an attribute called GSI1PK and GSI1SK. So just like your primary key and, and sort key, but now they're in your GSI. And then on that order item, or sorry, the on the order and the order items, you add those GSI1PK, GSI1SK values so that they're grouped in the same partition, just like you did with customers just and orders. And now when you do a query, you'll query that index, but using that same strategy, using that partition key to find the, the partition that has your order and order items in it and get all okay, those. So in this case, on the secondary index, the partition key is going to be like order hash order number instead of the customer one. Yep, and, exactly. and now when you actually look at like all the sequential data in that partition, you're just going to see one order followed by its items, then the next order followed by its items. The, actually, I mean, they'd probably be in different partitions. They'd be in different actually. partitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and what you want to do is, like, you only want to put something in the same partition if you're going to be fetching it together because there are limits on, like, how many reads and writes you can do per second per on a partition. And they're pretty high. It's like 3,000 reads and 1,000 writes per second on that partition. But you don't want to group that stuff together unless you really need to. So if you have two different orders and you're not going to fetch them together, throw them in different partitions, which if you include the order ID in that, uh, partition key, then they'll just be in different partitions. In separate partitions. Yep. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So if you're trying to do, like we've only been talking about like reads, I guess, so far, but say you wanted to like in, create like a new order um, mm-hmm. for a customer, I, the API I'm imagining in my head is like a fairly simple function call essentially, right? Where it's like, okay, here's the partition key, here's the secondary key, here's like maybe a, a dictionary of the attributes that need to go in. If you have stuff like these secondary index and stuff, is DynamoDB just like going to automatically manage like keeping all that stuff synchronized like instantly or is there like replication delays you have to worry about or Yep. So DynamoDB is going to handle all that. Like the API call you're going to do is is literally like the table name and then all the attributes on your item and you don't even have to say this is the primary key this one's the sort key they're just going to infer that based you've on specified the, that based on your yep. your schema that you created at some point yeah right? that's all declared on your table itself so your primary key your secondary index stuff that's all going to be fine as well as like your normal attributes like username date of birth um, and then dynamo when you write that item in there they're going to handle replicating that out to the secondary index and yeah like good point you're making there that is going to be subject to some replication lag it's usually like sub a couple hundred milliseconds so it's pretty small yeah but, like nothing that's actually probably going to affect your application logic 
Yep. But there's yep. like but, potential race conditions there, I guess. Yep. Yeah. If you're doing reads from a secondary index, um, you can only get eventually consistent reads. You can't say I want a, a strongly consistent read from a secondary index, um, which you know works for most cases, especially with the kind of delays um, that we're talking about there. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's interesting. So I'm starting to understand like how this how this stuff could work. So we talked about like being able to get these like query stuff and get it back. Um, if you're going to do something like that, okay, like give me this customer and like the most recent 10 orders, which I guess what you're saying is just like, get me 11 items from this partition. Like that's basically like as dumb as your query sounds to like dynamo, like from dynamo's perspective, it doesn't know like anything else other than like the number that you want, basically the sort key that you're starting at optionally, I guess. And like the partition that you're fetching it from. Yep. So what you're going to get back is just like a flat list of all these things. And then it's kind of your job and application code to basically, okay, well, item one was a customer. So I'm just going to pull that out into that variable. And then items uh, two through 11 or whatever are the orders. Yep, exactly. And like one recommendation I have on there is to include a type attribute on every single item you put in there. So mm-hmm. you can know like, hey, this is a customer item. This is an order item. Just so you know like what you're working with. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that makes that makes a lot of sense that seems it's i think like the interesting thing to me so far that um seems like a very significant difference is that dynamo is just kind of like it's like pushing more work to you than like mysql or something would in terms of understanding your data at least yep absolutely Um, like you're totally arranging it in the way you're going to use it so you need to like think about that before you design your table rather than like creating your table and then you know writing the queries and indexes you need so on that note like that that's something that's always made me nervous about these like no sql databases is just feeling like i have to like have this insight into the future to be able to know exactly how i'm always going to be accessing my data i have to imagine that in the real world new situations come up all the time that kind of contradict maybe how your data has been structured like say like the example you gave of like okay you have this like bookshelf with all these dictionaries and you know like you want to start with by picking a dictionary first and you can only ever query within one dictionary but what if some stakeholders like okay i need a report that gives me the 57th word from each dictionary you know like so what do you do when you need to satisfy like queries that your data wasn't designed to accommodate Yep. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think actually if you follow like uh, uh, the pretty generic system of like overloading keys and overloading indexes and doing that, I think it actually becomes a lot easier. But let's go back to our example. Like we had two access patterns before, right? Get customer in all the orders and get orders in all the order items. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine like we just planned for that first one, get customers and in, in in the most recent orders. And like now someone comes and says, hey, I want someone to be able to drill into an order and order items. Like how do we handle that? And what we do is like, you know, we said it needs to have those GSI 1 PK and GSI 1 SK values. So you just like figure out, okay, what's sort of the item collection? Uh, item collection is all the items with the same uh, partition key. Like what's the collection I need to create out of this and how how am I going to get that to happen? You design that, you work it out on your on your paper or on like a Google sh- spreadsheet or something like that. And then you just run, you know, I call it an ETL operation, but it's like ETL in pra- place where you scan your table. And if you see an order and if you see an order item, you add these new attributes to that order item, just do an update in place. Um, and then you're good to go. Now they have all those attributes. You add your secondary index and now you can handle that new access pattern. Gotcha. How do you Which make is like, sure? It's, it's more involved than 
um, you know, just adding an index like you would do or adding a column yeah, in yeah. a relational database. But it is like once you've done it two or three times, it, it's way more straightforward. It's basically like scan, identify the items that you need to update and add the attributes to those items. Gotcha. And when you say scan, um, what does that, that look like in terms of actually interacting with DynamoDB? This is like an alternative to doing a query, right? It's yeah. some way so, to basically like loop through the items in the partition essentially. Yep. So it, 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 not not just in a partition, but like your entire table. So okay. when you do a scan, it'll it'll just run over all items in your table. It's going to do that one meg at a time. So it's gonna you're going to be limited to getting one meg of data in any request. But then it's just going to have like a last seen token, basically that you can then just paginate through that. So you'll just loop over that. Um, so you know if you have a big table, it's going to be done in some sort of offline process. Uh, you know maybe you spin up a big machine to handle this or you can use like lambda or, or step mm-hmm. functions or something fancy like that to do that um, they also have like a mechanism called parallel scan where say you have a big table and you want to shard it over a hundred workers so they're all scanning it you can you can do that pretty natively without having to like manage all that state for you you just pass a couple extra parameters into that scan and it tells you or it handles that for you okay so what about a situation where um, you need to now, have some access pattern that is in direct conflict with how you've set up your partitions in the first place. Like now I need to be able to query across um, partitions. Like based on what I've understand so far, it sounds like that's going to force you to have to somehow collapse all that data back into one partition, which I'm sure is probably not what you actually do. Cause I'm sure there's a solution to this, but that's like where my head goes, right? If I'm thinking like, okay, well, the only efficient queries I can do are in a single partition, but we want to have as many partitions as possible. So we're trying to make sure that we come up with unique partition keys as often as possible, but now I have to collapse them back or do you really have to collapse them back or do you do some more stuff with denormalization or what is um, kind of the solution? And I can't think of a great example off the top of my head, but maybe you have one for this question. So prepared. you're saying something where you want to query across your entire table. So like maybe to find... Um, like find, you know, if you were find tw- every order that was like a, over a hundred dollars, you know what I mean? Yep. And, and I guess like the first thing I would say there is like, is this a, you know, if you split like access patterns into OLTP patterns and then like OLAP patterns where like OLTP is like all the, you know, online individual um, operations you're going to do, like making an order, um, canceling an order, updating an order status, things like that. But then OLAP are those big analytical queries where you might use them internally and say, okay, like how many orders over $100 did I have last week or um, what's my week over week growth or anything like that. So like DynamoDB is not good at that second category of, of application patterns. Like it's not going to be good at looking over your whole table and doing big aggregations. It's, it's, it's only good at that, that first category of doing like millions of, of tiny operations all the time. Um, so if you have, like if it's for internal use, then I would recommend like um, putting that out into like an external database that's that's built for that and there are a few different options on how to do that you can use something like amazon redshift you can, there are a few different options you can use there um, but even like sometimes in turn like actually in your application you might have access patterns that need to look across your entire database for something um like maybe you want to provide like a global leaderboard of of someone, right? Where it yeah, looks across yeah, yeah. Your, your whole space. You can do that. Um, it, it's a little tricky. Sometimes you need to do what's called like sharding where maybe you um, put everyone in, like split it up into five different sort of just uh, ad hoc shards. And then when you're finding that, that leaderboard, you query each of those five shards individually and then like merge the result sets. Um, 
Yeah. So there are a few different strategies around some of that stuff. It, it sort of depends on the particular access pattern that, um, on how you want to do something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So I think the important thing for me to understand though, is just that that's like, there's no silver bullet solution to that. It's like, this is sort of a trade off that you're making for the benefits that you want to get out of a uh, dynamo essentially. Yeah. I think, I think that's the biggest thing I miss about relational databases is just like, especially when I'm just starting, just being able to go like run an ad hoc SQL query and just being like, how many customers signed up today? Yeah. It's like, or, as, as long as your data yeah. is normalized, you can yeah. ask any questions you want basically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I totally miss that. That's, that's the biggest thing. And, and another thing is like, if you know those sort of aggregation questions you want to answer in advance, you can even design your table to handle those sort of internal queries that you want to do and, and say, okay, this many people signed up today, either by maintaining counters or, or doing some other mm-hmm. things. But so that's definitely doable. But the key is you have to know them up front. You can't just allow for ad hoc exploration on your yeah, data. Yeah. Or even if you don't know them up front, you need to be informed of them and then make the necessary adjustments yep. so that yep. but you can't just yep. say like, oh, I'm going to issue a SQL query and get the, the data. Yep. yep. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So one thing that I've been curious about, um, it's just like the idea of like modeling relationships. Like we've kind of talked about it a little bit already. Like I think some of the ideas that we've talked about already kind of explain how you do some of that. But one like specific question that I have is in our example, of like customers orders and order items, we're talking about keeping all those flat in a table. Um, but I think his, in like Mongo and stuff, at least people would often have like the order items be like a child attribute of the order. Is that something that you also do in dynamo or is it something you recommend against or do you have sort of like heuristics for when you do it one way versus the other yep absolutely so like i've written a post on this it's in the book too but there are like five different strategies of of one-to-many relationships and some of them are the the primary key in the query or the the secondary index in the query that we've already done but there are a couple like denormalization ones as well and like if you're i'd say the main heuristic i'm going to say there is like do you have access patterns on that related item directly so the, the example I always go to for this is like imagine you have customers and you allow them to save some mailing addresses that they want to like ship their stuff to. You're never going to like look up a customer by a mailing address, be like, hey, I have a mailing address. Like, what customer is this? And, and if you don't need to do access by that, but you just need to say, hey, give me that customer and also give me all the saved mailing addresses they've done, then you can denormalize. You just store those addresses like as a map or an object attribute on that that customer item. And then every time you fetch that customer item and you want to render that profile, it'll have all those addresses there that you can show there too. So that's a way to, to handle one to many in that way where you're just keeping it on that, that parent item since there are no um, separate access patterns there. Okay, that brings me to like another question actually that I didn't think of until just now, which is if you have like some parent entity, like a customer that has like one to many relationships with like many things, like we've talked about, okay, a customer has their orders. Now we're saying a customer has their like saved mailing addresses. Do you put that stuff in the same table in the same partition? Well, in, in this case, if we're using two different strategies where the mailing addresses are just saved on that customer directly, uh, like okay. now... Yep, even in yep. that previous one, yep. But so like, there's, there are, of course, examples though, like where you do need to flatten it, and there's a, a customer has multiple things that kind of need to be brought to the top level because they need to be queried. So in that case, like that seems like it would hurt the ability to just say, okay, get me like the customer, and then like the ten items after it, because maybe like the second relationship that they have is doesn't start until the hundred fiftieth item down because of like the sorting. 
Yep. So yeah. So how do you think it, it, about that sort of problem? Yep. It's it's a good question. There are a couple different ways you can handle that. One is you could actually store two different relationships in the same item collection because you could imagine having. Um, some number of related items at the top of the item collection, then that customer right in the middle, and then the orders after that. So then, and if you start, if you go query that item collection, you get all the sort of first related items, then that customer item, and then all the other related items. So you can say like, give me, um, you can sort of specify like the direction that it's, it should grab you the data in. Like you can say, give me everything before this sort key or everything after this sort key. Yep, yep, you can do that. as it, So with that sort key, yeah, you can say, like basically between, you can use between, there are a few different operations, but they're basically all just derivations of between. And you could say, give me everything between these two values. And you could say, scan it this, like sort it this way. So start at the customer and go up and get all those items before it, mm. or start at the customer and go down and get all the order items. So um, that's like it. sort of a trick for at least putting two kind of relationships in the same partition anyways. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Um, it makes sense. It's, it is like, interesting because it's like there's it sounds like there's a lot of limitations i guess is the right word but um more like trade-offs i guess is the is the better way to think about it which is why i was kind of interested in this whole thing in the first place because it feels like to me for the sorts of things that i build um it's hard to see like what i'm getting from dynamo for something that maybe has 600 customers and isn't like a super high traffic site that like makes it the right decision. And I, I know you're not going to say, well, it it's the right decision for X, Y, Z, like for some things, it's just not the, the right decision. Right. But I guess what I want to understand is like, it, is it sort of like a prerequisite for even choosing to use DynamoDB that you have uh, scaling concerns and lots of traffic. And that's the situation you have to be in for these trade-offs to start to like feel worthwhile. Yeah, good good question. I so like I'm not going to try and push you to to use Dynamo for for everything, you know, cuz I I think there are like a couple downsides of Dynamo and you need to sort of like weigh how those work out. But I would say I think Dynamo adoption has really been driven by two different use cases and the first one is like that hyperscale use case that you're mentioning like amazon.com. Like this is why Dynamo was was built and that was really most of the usage of Dynamo for the first 5 years of Dynamo DB existing. But the second big use case and like what's driving, I think, a lot of the adoption now is is something you mentioned early on is like how well it works with serverless compute where you don't have to worry about connection limits. You don't have to worry about like network partitioning your Lambda functions so that they can access your database without it being you know public to the world. So I think that's why a lot of people started looking at Dynamo. That's why I started looking at Dynamo. Um, and I... Like did it wrong for a long time, but I I like understand it now, and I think it like it definitely can work for almost every OLTP application that you want to use a relational database for. But but it's not. I'm not saying it's going to be better in every case. It's just it's got a lot of benefits, including that connection model stuff for serverless, but also like the billing model is is really great. I love it. Um, just like how you sort of provision it and, and, and it's fully managed and like how the permissions model and like if you're pretty familiar, if you're like I guess generically familiar with AWS and how things work, it just works like every other service in AWS and I think that's why a lot of people really like it. Like if you're provisioning a queue with Amazon SQS or or um, you know anything else, it, it, it feels very native to that and, and that's what a lot of people love about it. Yeah, cool. Makes sense. So one thing I am wondering is um, 
anytime you're using like a service like this, that's like a proprietary sort of cloud service. I'm always curious what like the local development story is like. So when you're doing local development on an application that's main data store is Dynamo, are you making network requests to real DynamoDB database in development or does AWS have like a toolkit for like kind of giving you a, a development version of DynamoDB you can run locally? Yep. So they have something called DynamoDB Local. It's just like a Java app that you can run locally. Um, and then I did a lot of development with with serverless. Like I was talking about, I used to work for Serverless Inc., which made this tool called the Serverless Framework that helps like deploy these Lambda applications. And there's a plugin that lets you use DynamoDB Local like directly with that. So you can run this command that's like, uh, I can't remember what it is, like serverless offline start. And it spins up like your HTTP APIs with all your functions. It also spins up that DynamoDB local, and you can run all that stuff locally. You can do, um, you know, integration tests on that locally if you want to, all kinds of things like that. Cool. Yeah, nice. So I guess, like, honestly, that's, like, basically all the questions that I had, but I'm sure there's probably interesting things that, like, I just didn't even think to ask because I'm not familiar enough with it. So is there any, like, elements of DynamoDB that, like, get you really excited that we didn't talk about yet that are yeah, worth covering? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I sort of touched on them just like on the on the other reasons to go with Dynamo, but like I really love the billing model. Like if you're talking about a relational database, you're you're trying to guess how many users you're gonna have and how many queries you're gonna run, and then you're like, okay, how does that translate to like CPU and RAM? And I just have no idea and I guess and I usually over vision and that's it. Whereas Dynamo, like you pay for reads and writes directly, and you're just saying, like, I need a max of this many reads per second or a max of this many writes per second, and you can actually provision those separately. So if you have a really high read application you can have more reads and fewer writes or or vice versa you can also do on-demand billing where like you don't do any capacity planning at all and you're just like i'm gonna pay per use in every request and and i don't have to think about that and it's like more expensive than if you were fully utilizing your your actually provisioned compute but like no one fully uses utilizes their database anyway so it's mostly just sitting idle all the time so that works a lot and also you can use it just like set a baseline and be like okay this is like my peak read units. These are my peak write units. I can go to provision capacity and set it at that and, and be good to go if I want to. Yeah. So like, I love that aspect of it. I just, I love it's fully managed. Like I don't have to think about upgrades or, or backups or anything like that, which I think that's getting more true with, with relational databases now. Like there are a lot of relational database services. So you don't need to think about that. Um, it also fits really well with infrastructure as code. So if you're doing serverless applications i think infrastructure as code is is really popular there and you know it's used elsewhere but i I think it's really big in serverless where you basically just say this is my application and infrastructure and includes your lambda functions and include your http endpoints but includes your database as well and like if you're using all this stuff that can be provisioned easily with infra as code and that is paper use you can basically like every time there's a pr deploy a new version of that stack run some integration tests on it and then tear it down and go and like you, yeah. you just have like much more confidence on that stuff um so i love i love all that aspect of it like i i do think there is a, a learning curve right and it's it's totally different than modeling in a relational database and you need to take the time to learn that and and i think do it right because otherwise you're going to like try it out it's not going to work. You're going to hate it, and then you're going to go back to something else. And so, like, make sure you use or, or like take the time to learn all that stuff. Um, the other like downsides I hate is like, you know, if you do have like a pretty small app and and you like data is not a huge concern, it's really nice with like Django or whatever, and you know Laravel or whatever to just like use the ORM that's like native to that application to like interact with your database, and especially if you're not going to have scaling concerns, and you can't really get that sort of functionality with dynamo yeah you you really need to like actually 
build out your data model and understand it and then like query it in unique ways. Um, so, so that's a bummer too. And then also, like you're saying, you can't just run these qu- analytic queries or, or sort of, you know, in Django, it has these admin views that come out of box that are really helpful. You can't do that. So I miss those, but I, I think the rest of it is, is worthwhile. Cool. On the topic of like the infrastructure as code stuff, um, we kind of like almost touched on it, but I don't think quite did. What does it actually look like in code to like set up your Dynamo stuff? Is it like some proprietary syntax or like the equivalent of, you know, your dot SQL file that creates all your tables and stuff? Yep. So, I mean, there are a couple different ways you can do it. It's like any AWS service. So you can go into the AWS console and just click around and create your table just mm-hmm. like through a form there if you want to. You can also use the AWS SDK to like provision a table that way. But what I use is, um, I mean, I use a serverless framework a lot because that's where I, I came from. But they're under the hood, it's using something called CloudFormation, which is just this infrastructure as code layer from AWS. You, you basically like write this manifest in either YAML or JSON that declares everything you want to have. So, you know, I use YAML. So it's this YAML of like, here's my DynamoDB table. Here's what the table name is. Here's what my primary key is, my secondary indexes, you know, what billing mode I want, all that stuff. It's all declared there. So it's in a YAML file in my repository. It lives directly with my code. And then if I want to deploy that, I just run serverless deploy. It deploys my functions. It deploys my DynamoDB table. And, and one thing that's nice about that is like, CloudFormation on its side is is just like parsing that and see w- what it needs to add and, and what it doesn't. So that first time you deploy, you know, you have two functions and a DynamoDB table, it's going to create that stuff. Then you add a new function, you deploy again, it already knows, it's, hey, those first sure, two functions, yeah. that table, it's still there. Like, I just need to create this new function and, and good to go. Gotcha. Does that whole same setup still work if you're using like their local Java thing to run your DynamoDB stuff? Like, can you point it at that app essentially and say like provision the DynamoDB stuff locally? Cause I'm just working in development. Yep. Yeah. So with, I mean, not every tool, like you, you need to do some tooling setup, but if you're using the serverless framework, there's a plugin that allows you to just connect with, with DynamoDB local and it, it'll read your serverless YAML file and say, okay, I need to create this, this table with these attributes and it'll just, it'll just work for you. Cool. Awesome, man. I think that's basically everything I wanted to cover. Um, I know like you, like we kind of mentioned at the beginning, you just put out this uh, massive book on DynamoDB that I've seen lots of people saying lots of positive things about. What's the best way for people to sort of learn uh, more about that or see some of like uh, your blog posts or any of the other stuff that you've published on DynamoDB if they're intrigued by this and want to look into it more? Yep, sure. So you can get the book at dynamodbbook.com. Um, earlier, I also like two and a half years ago, I made this site called dynamodbguide.com, guide, G-U-I-D-E. And it just like, has a bunch of resources and sort of walk through on, on the basics of Dynamo. And that's how I, uh, how I sort of went down this path. Um, I also blog a lot at alexdebris.com and there's some Dynamo stuff there as well. So if people want to check that out, they're welcome to. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alex about DynamoDB. If you're interested in these show notes, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 139. As always, thanks for checking out the podcast and we'll see you next time.